live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome to the show. You are on the Road to Recovery. You've dialed into 640 Toronto and you got me. Yona Bud, I'm your host this evening here at 640 Toronto. Thank you so much for joining us on this absolutely incredible long weekend. So I wrestle with this kind of stuff. Let me tell you what I wrestle with. If you're not heard, if you don't know who I am, it's the first time you're tuning in. I'm a crisis guy. I work in uh, therapy. I have treatment centers. I provide outpatient care, inpatient care. I deal with guns and gangs and all that kind of stuff uh, with people that'll listen. And I'm just involved in uh, people's help, trying to help people get through their mental health and perhaps some substance abuse issues and just life in general. So we got this show going called Road to Recovery where we get to share. I get to talk to you. You get to talk to me. How you do that is by calling 416-870-6400 or if you're outside the area, don't feel bad. We have a number for you. 888-888. That is 888-225-TALK. 888-225-TALK. Love to hear from you. It's kind of the show where we interact with one another. But, you know, sometimes I wrestle with, you know, getting on air and being energetic and in a good mood because the stuff we generally talk about here, for the most part, uh, isn't great. You know, we're talking about issues around mental health, addiction, crime. But we try to put a spin on it so we're leaving everybody on a on a positive note for sure. But sometimes I feel uncomfortable showing up to work and maybe being a little too energetic for you, kind of trying to tone it down. But, you know, this is who I am. This is what you get, especially at 9 o'clock at night on a Saturday long weekend. You got me, you got Stefan, you got Natasha in the background. We got our buddy Danny, uh, who is uh, our producer, uh, who's off on a holiday here shortly. Can hardly wait for her to come back, but um, she hasn't even left yet. Uh, but we have an amazing team, and we are standing by to take your calls around the things that you feel you can share or, or add that are relevant, um, and try to be nice, be kind, uh, be just remember, don't say anything that you wouldn't say in front of your mom or your grandma. Um, you know, speaking of going to work, right? <clears throat> So have you ever sort of find yourself kind of going to work and putting in your time and not really doing anything extra and just kind of getting through, right? Just getting through. However long it's going to take till the day ends and then the weekends and then the week and the month and then the month and then your holidays and like that. So if you're thinking about being out of work while you're at work, in other words, another I don't mean out of work as an unemployed I mean, out of work, like not there, just like not there. Something called quiet quitting. Yep. It's an opportunity for employers, though, to help reshape the workplace. So there's a lot of people talking about quiet quitting. um, And experts say that it's a profound opportunity for Canadian companies to both get it right with employees and improve the work landscape for the future. Uh, uh, Melissa Nightingale, she's the co-founder of management training firm Raw Signal Group. She says, smart organizations will take this moment to try to understand current workforce dynamics and meet people where they are. So it's not about shaking off, slacking off on the job, but it's rather setting boundaries and preventing burnout. That's kind of what this quiet quitting. So there's many definitions. Essentially, they refer to clocking in when you're expected to, doing your assigned task, leaving on time, and not taking on any extra work outside your regular hours. That's called quiet quitting. You know what? I call that a regular day at work. 
Want to hear what you think? If you're putting in that extra time, if you're if you're doing all things extra that you you know really don't want to, this probably isn't about you. But if you're going in, doing your job, no more, no less, whatever you get paid for, that's what's in your contract, and you're coming home when you're supposed to, and you're not working weekends and and overnight and you know into the evening as you might have or some other your colleagues have or you might have done that before, but don't do it anymore. That's kind. That's called quiet quitting. I want to hear from you, 416-870-6400. I want to hear what you think about the idea of being there but not really being there, right? We're going to talk about this for a couple of segments. We have a, an expert that's going to join us as well. Um, so stick, you know, stick to the, uh, to the station here and uh, jump in when you think you've got something to add. <clears throat> so in a tight job market, attraction and retention of talented staff, it takes on an increased importance when uh, workers have, you know, many more job opportunities, right? Job vacancies are very high. Um, pretty much everyone I talk to that's in business, uh, whether in the hospitality business, whether they're running a medical practice, whether they're, um, you know, running a car dealership, it, it's impossible to get quality people that apply for jobs. Uh, I have some coaching clients that are fairly substantial in big businesses that I work with. Uh, they have a hard time uh, getting the right people that want to uh, show up for the job. And then sometimes people get hired and then they don't show up. Can you imagine getting hiring somebody and then they just not show up when they're supposed to? Like, you know, you hire them and then they're supposed to start on the following Monday and they just don't show, they just don't come. That's not what this is about. This is about being there and doing what you need to do, no more and no less. So most employees understand that the nature of the work of the working world means sometimes unexpected things come up, right? <clears throat> Some important deadline or a project that's uh, behind that you've got to catch up on or something that needed to be completed that's, you know, got to, you know, there's a, there's a, a clock on it. There's a, a schedule or a time requirement, right? But when those expectations become an everyday thing that employers then clearly expect in the hiring process, or when the issue starts to begin, you know, when, when, when they're understaffed, they say, you know, you know, this, this job is not a 40 hour a week job. It might be a 60 hour a week job. It might require, you know, extra evenings and some weekends. And they let you know up front, that's cool. I mean, you get a decision, right? I join, I don't join. I want to be there. I don't want to be there. But burnout and mental health issues around employees working beyond what they're really designed to do. We're not really designed to work 24 hours a day, ladies and gentlemen. Physiology, psychology, all of that tells us that we need a break. You know, the so-called getting up after every hour and stretching your legs for 10 minutes and, you know, getting off your chair and bending, you know, doing, touching your toes and doing that. Like, there's all kinds of things we need to do to, to manage our physical burnout sitting at the job. It's obvious. You can feel it in your arms, right? But what we're talking about here is that emotional and mental burnout that happens when you just start not sleeping really well and not eating really well. And, you know, I, I talk to people all the time that have substance abuse issues and around those substance abuse issues, they have, you know, to deal with the fact that their job is, you know, causing them to either take something to stay up or take something to knock them down when they need to go to sleep and can't because they're wired from staying up so late and working so long. Not a good thing. This stuff is not, it's not good. It's not healthy. It's not productive. I always encourage prospective employees to ask employers about specific examples of when they might have to work late. Well, okay, okay, Mr. Smith, like when might that happen, right? When might that happen? When might there be a situation where I'm required? So the pulse of what we're trying to say here is it's not about not wanting to work. It's about working in the same way that, 
is good for you, good for the employer, and good for the loved ones in your life. I mean, if you got a wife or a husband and children, a spouse and children, or people, a doggy or a cat, some fish, people that rely on you, it's a big deal, and we need to pay attention to it. We're going to continue this conversation. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Michelle Slater. She's a director at Indeed. And we're going to talk about, is your boss, is your boss guilty of quiet firing? That's a whole other thing. When your boss kind of does stuff underneath you that you know, they know, is, not, is likely going to push you out the door. As soon as we come back, you'll join us again on the Road to Recovery here at 640 Toronto. I'm Yona Bud, your host. Thanks for joining us. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. You are on the Road to Recovery. You've dialed in here to 640 Toronto, and we're so happy that you did. Thanks for being a part of what we got going on here tonight. I'm Yona Bud, your host. Thanks so much for tuning in 416-870-6400 888-225-TALK if you want to play listen chat in add something say something nice right give us a call we'd love to hear from you so we've been talking about quiet quitting it's a whole concept of kind of showing up and you know doing what's expected of you and really no more kind of a nine to five thing i don't see why it's a big deal i think that's a reasonable way for people to work i think 40 hours should be more than enough to get your job done if you're doing it right and your boss is reasonable about the number of people they have employed there quiet quitting by the way the opposite of that, and it's not really the opposite, but the, your boss's version of it's called quiet firing. And what's that? Essentially, quiet firing happens when employees, employers, excuse me, <clears throat> demoralize their workers enough that they decide to leave on their own. This can happen in various ways, such as not responding to requests for promotions, wage increases, increasing workloads to unmanageable levels, or by snuffing out opportunities for career growth. I'm joined this evening with by Michelle. Uh, Michelle Slater, she's in the director indeed. Michelle, how you doing? I'm great. How are you tonight? Good. Are you enjoying your long weekend? I sure am, but I'm very happy to be talking to you right now. Yeah, I'm very happy to be talking to you because there's no one else up but us guys, right? So it's nice that we can even have a conversation with each other. Just kidding. So this whole thing, you know, I'm, I'm an old school guy. I've been at, you know, been around a long time trying to understand this whole concept of quiet quitting, quiet, you know, quiet quitting and, 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 and quiet firing. At the end of the day, isn't this just something we've been doing forever and ever? Well, it's not necessarily a new phenomenon, but it's got a new name. And it goes kind of in direct contradiction to what the last couple of years have been like called with the quiet, um, with the hustle culture. And people going crazy hours at work, going tremendously above and beyond, and really hustling constantly. Uh, quiet quitting, as you said, isn't actually involve quitting, but it does mean that you're focused on some other stuff, not just work. Work isn't the be-all, end-all of life. I think we all know that. And it means you're setting aside some time for the things that are important for you while still doing a decent job at work. Their boss is overlooking them all the time. You know, this, the whole concept of, of the quiet firing portion of it is where I find it, you know, it, it's not, I know it's something that's been going on for a long time, but in this day and age, are employers really 
doing that? Are they really trying to just kind of force their people out so they quit so they don't have to settle with them and come up with payments and stuff? Like, what's behind that? You know, it's an unfortunate tactic, and I haven't heard of it happening in a lot of places, but I know, unfortunately, some people listening in tonight may have experienced it in their life. Basically what it is, it's a way that employers can can sort of treat employees quite poorly and truly force them to leave instead of laying them off or firing them. And it's a really unfortunate thing that I, I really do hope that no one is going through on the call, but we always would indeed think that employer retention is truly good business practice, not only financially and reputation-wise, so it truly it's in an organization's best interest to maintain its workforce. How does it work in Indeed? Give me an idea what that place is like to work for. You know, it's, it's, you know, we hear, we hear, you know, for a long time we heard our competitor, uh, you know, the the people that, uh, um, you know, the Bell folks and their and, and what they're doing for mental health and all this and supporting this and you know, talk uh, talk day where they raise lots of money for mental health. But you look inside their organization and it's destructive and unhealthy for their employees. Um, What's the what's the behavior behind Indeed, and and how do you folks make sure that you you provide the best possible practices to maintain and retain your staff? At Indeed, we have a survey. It's called Workplace Happiness Survey, and for all of us, there's different attributes that make you happy at work. For some people, it's additional flexibility. It could be great benefits. It can be a combination of feeling included and respected great growth opportunities, education and training, and of course, fair pay for the work that you do. And indeed, we've got a couple of unique benefits. One of them is called You Days, and that's what it is. It's a day just for you, the entire company, everywhere around the world and all of the offices that we have. Um, Everyone gets the same day off. So you get no emails from your boss, no Slack messages, nothing going on. And that happens once a month. And the other great benefit uh, that gives you a chance to kind of just catch your breath, because work can be crazy busy at times, um, and we all need to take a break if we get unlimited uh, PTO or paid time off. And I think those two benefits, which are unique to Indeed, plus uh, very good pay for the work that we do and solid benefits, plus having your employer being invested in your own personal development, talking about career opportunities, career growth, training and incentives makes this for actually a really good workplace. I've been there for almost a year and I'm, I'm very happy at work personally. That's great. Um, what's your, I mean, as a director, what's your, if I may add, I mean, it's kind of outside what we're talking about. What's your actual function? Are you in the HR department or where are you in Indeed? You know, I actually, yeah, I work in marketing at Indeed. Oh, you sound like an HR person. <laughs> That's good. It's a good thing. That's a very good thing. By the way, I'm a big, uh, big uh, supporter of Indeed. I think it's a, if you guys or anybody out there that's listening, if you're looking to hire people or you're looking to find a job, it's 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 really an excellent platform. I highly recommend you pay for the ads as opposed to do the free ones. Uh, you get much much better results. That's how we staff our people in our outside businesses, uh, and their therapists and nurses and doctors. So it's high level people as well, not just people in lower level jobs. I was told as a manager some years ago that we could do that when we do this, uh, it helps us get employees out of the office without having to settle 
or dismiss them. That's according to someone through a LinkedIn poll. Uh, LinkedIn uh, did a, a news poll and found that more than 80% of workers have witnessed or experienced some form of quiet firing. And that's really where your boss just starts treating you like, 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 you know, not the way they should and causes you to make you feel like maybe it's not a place to work anymore. Um, you know, and I'm talking with Michelle Slater. She's a director in Indeed and just uh, an excellent guest, by the way. Um, Michelle, it, it, but isn't that really akin to, you know, premeditated firing? I mean, you know, or, or you're, you know, you're, you're looking to get, and when, and when you're doing that, aren't you just diminishing the whole productivity flow and kind of the buzz in the office when, you know, there's three or four people that might be getting picked on and not getting the opportunities and maybe you have to stay later and no thank yous and all that kind of stuff. Where are you, where do you see that? I think when you've got a good work environment where the management team works in partnership with the employees and they encourage an environment of happiness, an environment of learning and of growth, where people feel content, they feel trusted and respected, you actually have an excellent work environment. And generally, happier workers are more productive workers. So it's in an employer's best interest to treat their employees with uh, the respect that they deserve, making sure that they've got proper compensation, solid benefits, and they allow them to take time away to catch their breath, to be able to get rest and relief. And to encourage them and encourage basically all workers, anyone who's out there uh, listening in, is that I always say work doesn't hug you at the end of the day. So it's important that you do set some boundaries yourself and have some self-care activities for what you care about, whether it's hobbies or even if it's just taking your dog for a walk. It makes for a much better life. I love that. Work doesn't hug you at the end of the day. Um, Here, so... um, this is what people are looking for. Not working after five, uh, not working weekends, um, getting, you know, proper time off, um, not being challenged on sick days. I'm just reading some stuff from the poll, uh, uh, reasons why they focus on work their butts off and don't have time on their social life. This is all coming from a Gen Z or a Gen Zer report, um, on, you know, those folks driving that, that kind of, um, behavior we, we got a, a, only a little bit of time left um, and again thank you so much for being on here we've got less than a minute but if you can sh- quickly share um, how how would you suggest people set boundaries at work and, and not necessarily fear for their firing so to speak there's a couple of things that I'd start with and first off is to determine what boundary makes sense for you for each person it's going to be different for some people it's they want to stop working at six o'clock they don't want any emails coming in they don't want any phone calls for other people they want their weekends off and so make sure you've got a good understanding of what your limits are and then identify what needs to change And sometimes you need to change your own behavior. It's not just always on your employer, but if you're responding to emails as soon as they come in, regardless of the time or day, then you also have to make sure that you set that boundary yourself. And then make sure you communicate it, because if you don't let your boss know, then nothing's going to change. So those are kind of the three things I'd start with. 
I love it. It's excellent. I tell, I tell people all the time, listen, just don't respond. Well, if I don't respond, I might get fired. Well, then figure that out. But, you know, just because someone sends you something, right, you don't have to send it back. Uh, I'm joined here by Michelle Slater. She's a director at Indeed. Um, thank you so much for your time, Michelle. I hope you have an incredible weekend and get to see some fireworks or something cool uh, on, sun, on Sunday or Monday. Uh, but we were talking about quiet quitting and quiet firing. And uh, when we come back, we are going to talk about what uh, what's going on in the world of marijuana and hallucinogenic use among young adults uh, reached an all-time high, by the way, in, in the 2021 um, study. So I thought we'd share some of that on the road to recovery. I'm Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Okie dokie, if you're just tuning in, you are on the road to recovery. I'm Yona Bud, your host here at 640 Toronto. Thank you so much for joining us. I want you to chime in, 416-870-6400 or 888-225-TALK if you're in the outskirts. If you're not directly in the 416 area, I suppose that's where the 888 thing kicks in. Who knows? And if you don't want to call us for whatever reason, by the way, no one's going to know it's you. We can make up a name. They won't have to use your name. Love to hear from you, though, because it gets lonely on a Saturday night long weekend, just me and my crew. So we'd love to hear from you. You can also send me in at rhymes. How do you like that? You can send us an email, road to recovery at 640toronto.com, and we'll respond. We'll help you. We'll deal with you. We'll give you whatever opportunities we can through uh, your message and either make some changes, add some things, get you on the air, whatever you think you need. Send me a message. We'll try to help. Um, a lot of people are struggling out there with uh, the advent of recreational marijuana now being readily available pretty much everywhere in most places, um, and hallucinogenic use, right? So things that make you dizzy and trip and so on, um, up on the rise big time. Uh, so uh, marijuana hallucinogenic use in the past year, Reported by adults 19 to 30 years old, increased significantly in 2021 compared to a five and compared to five and ten years ago. Uh, it reached its historic heights in that age group in 1988. Uh, it's been monitored by the uh, monitoring the future. It's a panel study. They've been doing this for a while. Rates of the past nine past month nicotine vaping. Um, which have been gradually increasing young adults for the past four years, also continued their general upward trend in 2021, despite leveling off in 2020. Past month marijuana vaping, uh, which has significantly decreased in 2020, rebounded to pre-pandemic levels of 2021. So more people vaping weed now than before, or certainly before the pandemic and prior to the pandemic. Alcohol remains the most used substance, by the way, amongst adults in that study. Um, and daily drinking has been decreased over the past decade. Binge drinking five or more drinks in a row in the past two weeks rebounded in 2021 from a historic low in 2020. So I guess being locked down, you do less binge drinking, maybe less opportunity. Who knows? I don't know. We'll try to figure it out. On the other hand, high-intensity drinking, having 10 or more drinks in a row, has been steadily increasing over the past decade. Well, surprise, 2021 reached the highest level ever recorded since it first measured in 2005. So, wow, we're not doing a good job, folks. We're drinking more, smoking more weed, and doing things that aren't good for us. So since 1975, well, no taking you back. Just stick with me here. It gets better. Come on, hang on. Just hang in there. 
You're driving around. You got nothing else to do. Listen to me and listen to what I have to say. So, since 1975, the Monitoring uh, the Future study has annually surveyed substance use behaviors and attitudes among a nationally represented sample of teens. It's a U.S. study, by the way. Participants self-report their use of uh, drug use behaviors across three primary periods, lifetime, past 12 months, and past 30 days. The MTF study is conducted by scientists at the University of Michigan's Institute for Social Research and is funded by NIDA, part of the National Institute of Health. The data for the 2021 survey was collected online. Uh, so marijuana use, let's get to the bottom line here. Marijuana use past year, past month, daily uh, marijuana use, use on 20 or more occasions in the past 30 days, reached the highest levels ever. So using weed 20 or more occasions in the past 30 days reached the highest level ever recorded since this uh, trends were first monitored in 1988. The proportion of young adults reported past year marijuana use reached 43% in 2021, a significant increase, increase from 34% in 2016. Marijuana use in the past month was reported by 29% of adults in 20, 2021 compared to 21% in 2016 and 17% in 2011. So obviously making this stuff readily available, more people using it. doesn't mean that more people are out of control, by the way. It just means more people using it. Uh, hallucinogenic use. Last year, hallucinogen use is relatively stable over the past few decades until 2020 when reports started to increase dramatically in 2021, 8% of young adults reported past year hallucinogen use representing an all-time high since the category was first surveyed in 1988. Uh, types of hallucinogens we're talking about include, believe it or not, still going out there, right, is LSD, so acid, LSD, MDMA, mescaline, peyote, shrooms, mushrooms, um, PCP, like PCP is a horrible drug guy. Oh my God. That's what they used to dust, uh, uh, cocaine with back in the day and even weed back in the day when I was a kid. Hallucinogen uh, measures a significant decrease in the use. Um, MDMA is down. Okay. None of this really matters. Vaping, nicotine vaping in the past month increased significantly among young adults in 2021, despite leveling off in 2020. Uh, the prevalence of marijuana vaping in the past month of young adults increased. Alcohol use, reports of binge drinking by young adults defined as having five or more drinks in a row in the past two weeks returned to pre-pandemic levels. 2021 significantly decreased in 2020. So we're back to drinking more. We're back to smoking more weed. We're back to doing more street drugs. PCP, come on, folks. Anybody out there is doing that? That's just some horrible stuff. Uh, so what can we say? People are having a hard time. 66% of young adults reported alcohol use in the past 30 days. 66%, 70% recorded um, using alcohol in the past three months and using two to three drinks or more per time. I don't know, man. I don't know what you think about all this. I'll tell you what I think about all this. I think that we are trying to drown our sorrows, so to speak. We're trying to deal with our mental health issues, young people especially, by taking a trip, by going away. And I mean, a, a, not a real trip, but I mean a, a drug-infused trip, alcohol-infused trip. Um, not good. It's not good when we're relying on things outside of our own abilities uh, and there are great therapies and the great uh, skills, you know, mindfulness, cognitive behavioral therapy, all kinds of ways to get your life in order, eating better, sleeping better, physical fitness, big help. If you're not feeling right, booze, not the answer. A little weed, I don't know, maybe once in a while, but all this other stuff, yuck, come on. Got to be a better way. 
Speaking of a better way, wow. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Ford government. They give hospitals the power, listen to this, to send elderly patients to nursing homes regardless of whether they want to go there or not. Like, I think that sucks. I wouldn't want my dad, who's 96, thankfully in great health, doesn't need to be in one of these places, but certainly wouldn't be happy if all of a sudden they decide to discharge him to a long-term care home in Aurelia because that's the only bed that's available. That's what we're talking about. We want to hear from you. What do you think about that? 416-870-6400, 888-225-TALK. You're on the road to recovery. I'm Yona Bud, 640-Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640-Toronto. And welcome back. Boy, this hour is just flying by. I turned around, and oh my gosh, I got the last segment of the first hour, and we're almost done. I'm just getting started. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine when I'm like at 11 o'clock just wired after doing this show? Anyway, my problem, not yours. Thanks for clu- cl- cluing in and turning in and being part of what we got going on here on the road to recovery. I'm Yona Bud. If you're just tuning in, you're on 640 Toronto. That's what you've dialed into, and we're happy to hear from you. I believe we have a caller. We're going to get some information about him before we get him on. And uh, if you want to call about this topic or any other topic you think makes sense that you'd like to share with us, 416-870-6400. want to hear from you. Ford government's giving, giving hospitals power to send elderly patients to nursing homes. So in a bid to ease the shortage of hospital beds with the winter uh, COVID and flu season approaching, what they're doing is Ford and his government have used the, his majority to give hospitals more power to push frail and elderly patients cleared for discharge into homes, into nursing homes, not of their choosing. Not my language. This is the language coming out of the article that we're reading, Queen's Park Bureau. I think this is Canada Press. And um, the long-term care homes with the most available beds are the ones with the worst records of caring for seniors, according to the New Democratic, uh, the New Democrat MPP Wayne Gates. He's with he's in Niagara Falls. His party's long-term care critic. Ford insisted that almost 2,000 elderly in hospitals on waiting lists for long-term care beds would be better off in nursing homes, even if the facilities they are sent to are not on the list of the five preferred homes they have selected. So you get to choose. You just may not get what you choose, right? I think we had a caller that wanted to talk to us about this. I don't know where he is, but uh, my staff will let me know, I'm sure. Uh, our production folks, that is. It's about giving proper care to people who should be in long-term care, uh, Doug Ford said. Um, opposition parties complained the act, which Ford did not mention during the June 2nd election. There's an actual um, act that they're trying to pass. Um, it's known as the as the More Beds, Better Care Act, Bill 7. So if you don't like it, tell your MPP to vote against it. Uh, if you like it, you know, support it. There's also the prospect patients refusing to consider long-term care or other facilities. Once cleared by the hospital for discharge, listen to this, they could be charged as much as $1,800 a day if they stay in the hospital bed. So you don't want to go to, the, you don't want to, go to long-term care? No problem. $1,800 a bed. Now, hospitals in this province are, I think, very good. They provide great care. But I don't know that their facilities are worth 1800 a day. I mean, you know. The lack of specifics about the bill raised a lot of concerns with the um, the opposition critics, both the, the liberal and NDP, needless to say, have something to say. Ford says the status quo is no longer an option giving overcrowding in hospital emergency rooms, some of which had had temporary shutdowns this summer because of lack of staff. There are now 6,000 patients in Ontario hospitals. 
including almost 2,000 of them waiting, awaiting nursing home beds, who no longer require the kind of care that you provide is provided for in the hospital. So critics have slammed the government for not doing enough to boost those alternatives, resulting in the current situation. Uh, the reports from the Commission in Long-Term Care and, mili- and uh, military medical teams called in several homes where staffing levels fell low, if you remember that. Bill 7 will profoundly exasperate the discrimination and disadvantage the elderly, that, that elderly patients and their families experience today. According to a statement from the Ontario Health Commission Advocacy Center for the Elderly and the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about being able to be in a facility and being asked to leave? 416-870-6400 or 888-225-TALK. If you're in a hospital, you got your mom or dad, God forbid they're in a hospital and they're a little bit a little bit older. I know my dad's 96 and my mom just passed recently. She was 95. Thank, thankfully, neither one ever had to be in a long-term care facility and hopefully they never will. My dad never will. Um, but the problem here is you're in a hospital, you're there for not being well, right? And now you're trying to figure out where you're going to next. Problem is you may not have an option. So unless your family is of means, in other words, they have money and can get you into uh, paid for uh, long-term care uh, and you have to rely on the, the, the care that's available through the province, you're going you're gonna to go where they tell you to go. You, you might be, you know, stuck in a long-term care home, you know, in Barrie, even though you're in a hospital in downtown Toronto. So, you know, you may not get to choose what you want to do. You may not get to choose where you go. I don't know how you feel about that. 416-870-6400. We're running out of time on this particular subject. Someone out there has to have an opinion. Natasha, what do you think? You think... I'm going to bring in Natasha. She's our, on our production team here. Hey, how do you, what do we, how do you feel about that? I, I think this topic is um, disgusting, in all honesty. I think a lot of our seniors are getting not the care that they deserve. I see it happen with my nan. I haven't um, had a personal experience where it's gone so south, where it's been the situations you're describing, but to know that it's happening out there makes you... It, it hurts you as if it was your own relatives, right? It does, right? Because I mean, these are for a lot, and these are a lot of people. I don't know I, I've been, you know, I've been in a fair number of long-term care homes, visiting people and fathers and grandparents of friends, and you know, uh, whatever over the years and relatives. Um, and you know, a lot of the places that are paid for for paid for facilities are okay; they're pretty good. Uh, the ones that are, you know, some some of the ones that are offered um, as a as a government sponsored. Uh, alternative. Um, some of them are, are excellent as well, but for the most part, people that go to these facilities have some have some skin in the game. They get to at least talk about the options. They get to look at the type of facility that might be best for them. Least of which is location to their family. So if you're in, you know, if you're a Toronto-based person and you know you're you're not well and you've been in hospital, excuse me, and you've been in hospital. Um, it's chances are when you're well, they're going to ask you to leave. They're going to discharge you, and if you don't have a place to go and you're on you're on a list for long term care, they're going to send you to whichever long term care facility is available. 
I, I think what Natasha said is exactly right on. It's disgusting. Um, and the problem is for people that can't advocate for themselves. So it's one thing if you've got a family member or a buddy or someone that can, you know, get involved in this with you a little bit here, right? And talk about, uh, you know, you know, someone to advocate for what's good for you and what's, you know, your best interest. But, you know, many seniors are kind of, I hate to say it, and, you know, I'm sure Natasha will, will tell me she's heard of it too, but, you know, people just kind of put their elderly in these facilities and maybe don't visit often enough or ever. Um, you know, I hear stories constantly about people in long-term care homes that just don't have visits for month after month after month. And I mean long, long prior before the, the pandemic. Um, so when there's decisions and someone gets hurt or is ill or something, you know, they fall, uh, they fall frail for some reason and, and they need special care that only a hospital can provide. They go there, they may be, what, a week in the hospital, 10 days in the hospital. I mean, it depends on, I guess, the illness. Could be maybe a month or two. Who knows? I, I don't know. I, I'd like to think not. Uh, they try to get you out real quick, though. I remember when I had my uh, my appendix out, um, and it was an emergency appendix, appendectomy, laparoscopic appendectomy, I might add. Um, that just meant there's little or small scars. But um, they were like, I wasn't really ready to come home, but I was coming home. Um, and that's just the way it is, right? So we got Roxanne and Brian are standing by to speak about this talking. Let's t- start with Brian because I think he jumped on first. Hey, Brian, how are you? Hey, pretty good. How are you? Good. What could you share with us about uh, this whole thing about having folks shipped off to wherever the government thinks they should go? Well, I think this is indicative of a generally larger topic, and the topic would be disrespect for elderly people. Disrespect yeah, I love it. Even if you clock over 71 years old, you're at risk of being deemed not capable of handling your own situation. That's disgusting. Like, 71 is not a magic marker where people should be deemed uh, incapable. That's ridiculous, but I think it's happening. I'll tell you what, my father's 96. He just had a capacity test done for some insurance reasons and so on. He hit it out of the park. But, you know, a lot, you're, you're right. There, there's people that talk to 72 and 74 and 75 and 80-year-olds like they're, you know, like they're disabled. They can't think and they can't hear. But, you know, that's, it's not the case anymore. Um, do you, you have someone elderly kind of caught up in a situation like this real quick? Well, I'm approaching that magic age, and I'm getting some indications of a general change in thought processes from my physicians. And uh, like they know damn well that uh, I'm fully capable of handling everything related to major issues, like major decisions around even uh, planning financial issues and uh, retirement savings and all that kind of uh, end. Thank you. How old, how old a guy are you, Brian? <laughs> I just I just clicked into 71, but... Oh, okay. You're, 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 you got years left in you, man, like 20, 30 years left in you. So all I can tell you, buddy, is wear a T-shirt that says, I'm not frail or stupid. Don't take advantage of me and uh, walk around with that. Thanks so much for calling. We're going to listen to what Roxanne has to say. Roxanne, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Okay, thank both, you so much. It happened to somewhat both my parents, but my dad especially... They just that you know, when he was medically stable, he was 91, and he couldn't, he didn't even, you know, he had a lot of dementia and different is, issues, yeah. but he couldn't, 
he stayed home until then and had home care. But once the hospital can't deem you medically stable, they're not doing anything for you anyway. Exactly. They're not taking care of you any better than a nursing home. And then they just said, if you don't go to the nursing home, you have to pay the daily rate, which is, I think, for a four-room nursing home is $62 and some change per day. But, you know, here's here's the deal. We were charged that amount of money. Yeah, here, here, oh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, but here's the deal. The deal, I, I totally agree with you. When you're done in hospital, it's the last place you want your elderly folks to be or anybody in your family because it's a place where you can right. get sicker if you stick around too long. But the, the, right. what, we're really talk, what we're really talking about here, uh, Roxanne, is you know not having a choice as to where to go. Can you imagine you go to visit your, your nana or your grandma or your mom, whoever, whatever age range this all fits for you, and, and you get there and they've been moved to a long-term care home in Aurelia and you're like, in downtown Toronto, and no one got, no one checked with you. Like that's that's really what we're talking about here. I, I think I that's. Um, I do understand that because this was in the country as well. Yeah. If you live in the yeah. country, there's only if there's only three nursing homes close to you. you yeah. And the waiting lists are years and years long. What do oh, they do with you? How long can you stay in the hospital? So, do you think it's a good idea that people just be, you know? I just. I just don't think it's a totally bad idea. I, I would agree. Greatest, it's not the greatest, but I'm just saying, how long do you think someone should stay in the hospital when they're medically stable but unable to look after themselves? And yeah, I totally... Can't, if their family won't do it... The hospital has to. I listen. I, I I think it's a. I think it's. I think it's a good plan. The only thing I get uncomfortable with is when people are shipped to places where their family can't access them. But that if that was the case, and their family were visiting them anyway, like you would be, I could tell for mm-hmm. sure that's the kind of person you are. You'd make sure that you advocated and made sure they got, went to the right place. So anyway, Roxanne, thank you so much. For, thank you so much for calling. I really appreciate it. Uh, you listen. <laughs> yeah, I know. Thanks, man. You're on the road to recovery with Yona Bud here at 640 Toronto. We'll be right back. We've got tons of stuff to do. Uh, we're going to talk about alcohol and how much people are drinking and what Ottawa should do about that. See you in just a minute. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. You're on the road to recovery with the second half of our show. Thank you for joining us. If you're just tuning in, this is a show about people helping people and us helping people and everyone helping one another. And it's just a big help fest. We'd love to have you participate. 416-870-6400. Or if you're on the outside, 888-225-TALK. We'd love to hear from you. By the way, if you ever need to get a hold of me, you can do that by sending a message to road to recovery at 640toronto.com or get a hold of me at 877-777-5808. We'd be glad to talk with you and help in any way that we can. So we're going to open the uh, second hour talking about Ottawa being urged to label alcohol after report links moderate use to increased risks, risks, uh, risks excuse me, of cancer and other fatal illnesses. So this is something we need to pay attention to, to be, uh, to be at a low risk of suffering negative acute and or long-term health outcomes from drinking. Uh, the CCSA's report says a person should consume on average zero to two standard drinks each week. So drinking three beers a week increases your risk of developing breast or colon cancer. 
while sipping a daily glass of wine can make you more likely to develop heart disease and increases your chance of having a stroke. You paying attention, right? And uh, according to a new report highlighting the risks of moderate alcohol consumption, the report published on Monday by the Canadian Center on Substance Use and Addiction, CCSA, examined several studies and said that they show strong links between moderate to heavy alcohol use and some fatal illnesses, including cardiovascular disease and a number of cancers. On the uh, phone waiting to chat with us is Dr. Tim uh, Naimi. He's the director of the University of Victoria's Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research. Uh, Dr. Naimi, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. So it's nice to be here. It's a pleasure. Uh, so you good with Dr. Naimi or Tim? What would you prefer? Tim is great. <clears throat> my, oh, good. That's my, my perfect. Late, t- my late father was Dr. Naimi, but I'm just Tim. That's what people say, you know, and they call me Mr. Bud. I said, my 96-year-old father's Mr. Bud until he's uh, no longer around. I'm just Yona. So, okay, Tim, welcome. It's great to hear that, you're, that your dad is still Dr. Naomi. Um, he's proud. He's proud, I'm sure, that you're his son carrying it on. So, listen, um, this whole study about, yep. uh, you know, I deal in addiction, you deal in addictions. You know, we do both deal with patients constantly. Uh, this report is... Um, Somewhat surprising to me because there used to be there used to be this thing of you know daily glass of yeah. wine was good for you. So what's what's the real the real shinny? Yeah. Well, first of all, you know people who drink a lot or heavy drinkers, whatever we want to call them, and and not all of them, by the way, are in recovery or have an alcohol use disorder even. But Correct. heavy drinking accounts for most of the problems. But at the lower levels of consumption, alcohol used to have a bit of a health halo, and that halo has uh, fallen off in the past. 10, 15 years. And uh, what we know now is that the risks, um, you know, from from alcohol have been uh, a bit uh, even underestimated, particularly at the lower levels of consumption. So what we, this is a study that we're basically, these are the new Canadian guidelines. They're being, they they were just released for a public comment period, but basically the latest science is that the risk of, of death from alcohol starts to go up after just two drinks a week, which is a surprisingly low number. Surprisingly for you, too? Well, not to me, because, again, when uh, the, the, a lot of the evidence around the um, some prof- protective effects at low levels for the heart have kind of uh, been greatly weakened. So, yeah, and, and even before, though, uh, Yona, the study showed that basically the even for people who drank alcohol, that the risk of, of, of death from an alcohol-related cause began to increase over just half a drink a day on average. And we found something even a little bit less than that, like two drinks per week. But the bottom line is, is that for anyone who's listening, and it doesn't matter how much you drink, but basically the simple message is, if you drink letter, if you drink less, that's going to be better for for health. And, and you, you said something on the on the outside here, Tim. Uh, if you're just t- yeah. tuning in, by the way, I'm talking to Dr. Tim Naimi. He's the director of the University of Victoria's Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research. Uh, <clears throat> we're calling him Tim, so we're talking to Tim. Um, and 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 we're t- so um, for just for the record here, a standard drink is defined as a unit containing eight to twenty grams of alcohol. That's about half a shot well, to a shot of whiskey. Well, no, no, actually, whiskey. A, a, a unit, a, a Canadian standard drink. Yeah. It's pretty much the same as an American standard drink. It's for, for those who are counting at home, 14 grams of ethanol, which is basically the amount of ethanol in a 12-ounce beer or a 5-ounce glass of wine or a shot of, of uh, liquor. 
So okay. the, those are all contained about 14 grams. So, okay. so that's what a standard drink is. And the risk of of death actually starts to increase above uh, two stand just two standard drinks per week. Interesting, eh? Um, so, so the the you said something on the outset though that's not we're not yeah. talking about people that have a substance use disorder. We're just talking about people who drink, you know, a couple, three, four drinks a week. Um, how does this? Uh, the, the, go ahead. Yeah. Now, yeah. When I wanted, to, yeah. Go ahead, Yona. Sorry. No, what I was going to say is, Tim, that, um, you know, the, the, let's, let's focus on people. You know, there's a lot of people listening in that are, you know, perhaps younger. Uh, they're into, you know, kind of binge drinking, if you will. So that yeah. means, you know, Friday and Saturday night they go hard, but they don't drink the rest of the week. And they think that, you know, they're okay. Uh, they're not, are they? Well, no. There's two things with that. One is that even their total drinks are, again, we're, the whole purpose of these guidelines is, is actually we want to inform Canadians. We're not, we're not putting one guideline out like there has been in the past. We're merely pointing out that there's a continuum of risk, which is what the science has showed for a long time. But yeah, binge drinking, if you binge drink a couple nights a week, uh, first of all, binge drinking puts you at very high risk of a lot of things. Uh, sexual assault, being a victim of sexual violence, you know, car crashes, child all kinds of problems right so that's binge drinking is a is a whole separate thing that has to do with your pattern of consumption Correct. and even if you binge drink twice in a week i mean that's 10 drinks so that's put you at uh, increasingly high risk of chronic diseases down the line like cancer or heart disease but the main thing with binge drinking is that it makes you impaired it it predisposes people to violence and to, you know injuries and that sort of thing you know, it's interesting because um, I remember years ago I developed uh, diverticulitis and uh, huh. talking to my talking to my doctor about uh, you know the things I did and things I didn't do. Uh, we don't even want to get into diet because he didn't like any of that. But um, and he said to me, "Do you drink?" I says, "You know, I, I'm you know I'm an act I'm active in my Jewish community. I'm in the synagogue on weekends. I have a couple of shots, you know, here and there with my with my buddies. But you know, it's usually just Friday night and Saturday, just a little bit." And he said, "Yona, you're better off to have a drink every day." Than having shots like that um, in 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 bulk periods because it's harder on the system. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Well, in general, yes. For any for any amount that you consume, uh, and again, less is better. But for any amount that you consume, yeah, you're better spreading it out uh, over the longest period of time possible. Well, just for the record, for those listening in, I heeded his call and don't drink very much at all, if ever. Uh, primarily, <laughs> yeah. I didn't. Ha- I don't have a substance issue. Certainly not with alcohol, anyway. Yeah. Um, and uh, but anyway, so so you let's know, one get thing to I should mention is that yeah. most people Please. who drink drink in ways that can be risky or unhealthy are not don't have an alcohol. You know, aren't alcoholics. I think that's a really important distinction to make because yeah. Yeah. Even among us doctors, right, for the longest time, we've been like, oh, okay, well, the person's not an alcoholic. Or what's the first thing that, you know, if someone says to us, hey, I think you drink too much or I'm worried about you, we say, oh, I'm not an alcoholic. Well, whether one is or not, I mean, the, the bottom line is a lot of people drink in, in sort of risky or unhealthy ways who aren't an al- alcoholic. And I think, um, and, and uh, you know, binge drinking, I should have mentioned another thing is that it, it increases your risk of, of, uh, of alcoholism later on. So it's good to keep in mind the full spectrum of consumption, and that's what we're also trying to do here with these new guidelines, is not just to speaking to people who are deciding, well, should I have three drinks a week or two, or, or we're, and we're not just trying to speak to the people who are having 20 drinks a day either. We're, we're kind of trying to want to speak to the whole spectrum and, and encourage everyone to kind of learn more and, and drink a little less, and, and uh, that, that's the basic idea. 
Yeah, the the part of this whole article kind of talks about Ottawa being urged to label alcohol. You know, when uh, when marijuana when marijuana first came out as a recreational product, I'm sure you were like me. You were like you know kind of concerned to see how that's going to turn out. And then the labeling on labeling on marijuana products, cannabis products, whether they're edibles or smokables or oils or whatever, uh, it tells you. You know, the this yeah. much is this much is when you get with alcohol. There's nothing. Yeah. It just tells you how much alcohol. So are well, you? I, I, I like the idea of labeling. What about you? Yeah. Well, I'm a. I'm, yeah. I, I I stand behind our report, and I. So we all really feel like labeling is important. First of all, philosophically, right? We're trying to move away from this idea of telling Canadians what to do. We want to yeah. inform them what to do. But you can't yeah. inform people with no information on the label, right? So you make a great point. I mean, alcohol, you know, cannabis and tobacco, you know, the Canadian government is yeah, actually yeah, yeah. pretty good on those in terms of labeling, even by international standards. But guess what? There's a big old, um, big old nothing for alcohol, right? There's no information. And I like to joke with people, you know, if I have a can of open, go to the grocery store and buy a can of peas, I know how many milligrams of calcium are in my gram of, of you know, my can of peas. But I don't know how much, you know, I don't know how many standard drinks are in my, my bottle of whiskey, and I have no idea that it's a carcinogen, and I have no idea that alcohol is calorie-dense. I don't know how many calories are in it. So it's, it's ridiculous. And even for my can of peas, it tells me, you know, how many ounces is a serving size, and it doesn't tell you that on the bottle of whiskey. So it's just a glaring double standard. Um, it's ridiculous for, uh, you know, again, many of us uh, enjoy alcohol or don't enjoy alcohol, but it's a legal substance. But this idea that something that is, um, you know, as uh, can be as harmful as alcohol doesn't have essentially has no information, and a can of peas has, you know, all the information. The whole you half need. the label is telling you what's in it. Is <laughs> just you know, it's, it's kind of obvious. I don't need to say more. Thank you for joining us. This, I'm talking here with Dr. Tim Naimi. He's the director of the University of Victoria's Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research, and uh, definitely we'll have some him have you have him come back on another time and uh, talk about stuff related to uh, you know the kind of research he does and how it helps other people. When we come back, we're going to continue to talk about this with you, the listeners. Four one six eight seven zero sixty four hundred or triple eight two two five talk, which is eight two five five. Want to talk about your drinking patterns? If you're comfortable, you're drinking a little more, a little less. How do you feel about labels on bottles and so on? We'll be right back. You're listening to The Road to Recovery. I'm Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. You're listening to The Road to Recovery. I'm Yona Bud, your host this evening at 640 Toronto. And we thank you so much for joining us. We know you have other choices we're glad that you chose us. It's now 1021-ish, give or take. Do you know where your children are, your loved ones? We'd be glad to uh, help you if you need some help. 416-870-6400. Do you know where they are? Your pets, your seniors, for sure. If not, probably uh, if you're worried about them, you need to call 911 and uh, just connect. Maybe a phone call, a text message. Make sure everybody's okay. It's Saturday night on a long weekend. All kinds of crazy stuff can happen, right? And speaking of long weekends and Saturday night, are you out there tipping a few beers back? Maybe even having a real nice drink on one of the many patios here in Toronto. It's a great place to be out socializing on a Saturday night. But come on, get close to the get close to the radio. It's just between you and me right now. Come on, shh, shh, get close. So seriously, between you and me, are you drinking more than you used to? No, 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 no come on, straight up. Nobody's going to hear. Are you drinking a little more than you used to? 
And and would you you think that if the government put a label on your booze about how much to drink or the dangers of drinking or anything about drinking like they do with your weed and they do with your food products, like our previous guest was talking about, do you think it would help? I want to hear from you, 416-870-6400, 888-225-8255, we'd love to hear from you, and we want to hear, like, what's going on? Has your drinking Have your drinking patterns changed in the past few years? I know some people have increased their drinking. I know a lot of people who have decreased their drinking. I know a lot of people are trying to get well around their drinking and some of their substance issues. Maybe we can just include, you know, smoking a little extra weed, maybe chewing a few extra gummies. That's what we're talking about here. But in particular, we're talking about labeling alcohol here in Ontario so that you know what the hell is in it, right? Forget about, you know, the dangerous stuff. How about just the calorie count? How do you do that? How do you know what the calorie count is? Each bottle, each beer, each kind of whiskey, tequilas, you know, there's 18 different kinds of fabulous tequilas out there. They all have something different. Same with whiskey, same with wines. Oh, my gosh. There's sections and sections of wine. You know, I'm not an aficionado, so to speak. Uh, I know people that are. They spend tons of time shopping and looking and going through the opportunities to buy different various things. But they look at the year. They look at the at where they're from, the, the you know the the the, uh, the the I guess the lineage of the of the wine itself, the grapes, but there's nothing on the bottles or the packages that tell you what the hell's in it. They don't say things like three to six drinks per week puts someone at moderate risk of negative health conditions. Six or more standard drinks per week puts a person at higher risk. So the numbers change slightly based on your body weight and your physiology. Okay. So while men and women showed no overall difference in premature death, men are able to consume more drinks on average than women before suffering other serious health, health outcomes, including liver damage. So high-risk drinking amongst women, needless to say, has severe effects on reproductive health. Public health, health experts have advised that for decades against alcohol consumption during pregnancy, because adverse effects of fetal exposure include brain injury, behavioral problems, and learning disabilities. So if you're having a beer or two while you're pregnant or a glass of wine while you're pregnant or smoking a joint while you're pregnant, just to get to that, not good for the fetus, man. Smoking anything, not good for the fetus. As well, recent uh, research shows moderate to high-risk alcohol consumption can affect a woman's overall fertility and ovulation cycle, potentially complicating the ability to become pregnant. I, 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 I have, I would say on average, once every month or two, I have someone joining my practice as a patient um, who are dealing with, who are, you know, are dealing with issues around fertility, infertility, and so on. Um, never thought to ask if they've been drinking, uh, but now I will. Um, as we're trying to help them through the depression and the anxiety about trying to get pregnant, it can be really, really, really tough on a person. Um, but anyway, the whole philosophy behind the whole philosophy behind the project is that people have the right to know to make informed decisions, according to Dr. Peritis, uh, who adds that the recommendations or on labels are not intended to deter people from drinking. So, like Dr. Tim uh, Naomi, who uh, is the director of the University of Victoria's 
Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research. The, the intent of the researchers and the experts, including myself, not to deter people from drinking necessarily. Not everyone has a drinking problem. Not everybody has a weed problem. Not everybody has a cocaine problem. They can do a line or two and move on. I don't know, I guess. Um, most can't, but many can. Um, but it's more about knowing what the heck is in the booze and what, what a good standard drink is. So, you know, it would be nice to know that there's a caution around, you know, drinking alcohol to a point of excess such that it has a negative impact on people's health in a serious, serious way. Some research highlighted in the report shows that labels have a deterrent, deterrent effect on high-risk drinking, which is the, the intent here. The study from Whitehorse, Yukon, they surveyed more than 2,000 people who visited a single liquor store where alcohol products had labels for standard drinks and a cancer warning, and they found that sales for the labeled alcohol dropped 6.6%. So here you go. If you're the alcohol and gaming folks, and you're trying to increase the number of people drinking because you want more alcohol revenue, labeling the boxes is probably not going to be a good choice. But if you're interested in people's wellness and health above and beyond profit, it's clearly the way to go. Other studies have found that alcohol health labels led to 10% increase in the ability to recall cancer risks and a 50% increase in being able to recall low-risk drinking guidelines among consumers. So alcohol consumption in Canada is associated with sleep health and economic costs. <clears throat> Excuse me, in 2017, according to the CCSA report, alcohol contributed to 18,000 deaths in Canada. In that same year, $5.4 was spent on health care related to alcohol consumption. Did you hear what I just said? 18,000 people died in Canada from alcohol-related illness. $5.4 billion of our taxpayer dollars was spent on health care related to alcohol consumption. Although the CCSA report examines the role of alcohol in issues such as intimate partner violence, um, they, the studies re remain unresolved as to how to address its relationship with mental health. Unfortunately, we're unable to find evidence that satisfied the very, very high quality criteria we set ourselves uh, to use for this project, according to the doctors in charge, noting that Aust Australia faced a similar problem <clears throat> when reviewing its alcohol guidelines in 2016. So what we're talking about now is, um, <clears throat> does Canada have a drinking problem? I don't think so, but I think the problem is why alcohol is the new cigarette. So according to 2020, uh, 2020 report uh, from the National Health uh, and Medical Research Council in Australia, a systemic review of research found no reliable evidence to support a casual relationship between alcohol consumption and almost every mental health issue, with limited evidence of association between alcohol consumption and worsening bipolar disorder. So as far as I'm concerned, I've treated thousands of patients in the years I've been doing what I do, and I can tell you that if you are have an unstable mental, have unstable mental health, Depression, anxiety, you know, uh, bipolar, anything on the bipolar scale, anything in terms of uh, personality disorders and so on. Alcohol, and if you're clearly, if you're taking any kind of medication for that, any kind of mood stabilization or blood stabilization medication, um, it's not going to work well if you pollute it with alcohol. 
So it's imperative that people understand that alcohol has the ability to um, not only uh, have a negative impact on us physically and uh, mentally, but moreover, if you're on any kind of medication, the first thing it says on the bottle is don't consume alcohol while taking this medication. Why do you think it says that? Right? Because there's a dilution process. Alcohol acts as a, as a, to dilute the benefit of many of the chemicals that are in the, the, the alcohol, that are in the medications that we take. And alcohol provides that kind of um, uh, dilution factor. If you, you know, if you have a drink of alcohol, you have a drink of beer, have a beer uh, some, sometime through the day and you're on, you know, Ciprolex or, or any of the mood, mood stabilization medications, um, it, it just dilutes it, right? Same with any medication that you take for any illness, like, for example, an, an antibiotic, right? So this says clearly if you're on an antibiotic, taking an antibiotic, do not consume alcohol. It says that for a reason, right? But the idea of labels, the idea of having information on our products that we consume, every product we consume, whether it's a can of peas like Dr. Tim says, or whether it's the weed you're chewing, smoking, eating, swallowing, mixing with your drinks, having a drink of alcohol infused with THC, that's a double whammy. If you're not careful, you want to make sure you know what you're drinking and what's in it, how much THC is in it, and so on. Be more careful, right? So the labels are not to deter people from drinking. The labels are to make sure people understand what they're, that what they're drinking may have negative consequences. However, you know, use at your own risk. You know, if you read the labels on a package of cigarettes these days, it's enough to deter anyone from smoking cigarettes. However, tons of people still do. You know, a lot of people just get rid of the package and they put their cigarettes in some other kind of container so they don't have to look at those disgusting, you know, packaging uh, pictures that you see of people dying and lungs that are diseased and, you know, elderly people, you know, die, you know in, a, in a hospital bed or young people or a fetus that doesn't look healthy. Like, they, they get the message across. The same should be done with alcohol. I'm not, sure, I'm not suggesting they need to scare you away from using it. That's not the intention. The intention is to help people understand how much alcohol they're consuming and what the downsize, downside excuse me, of that consumption could lead to. Anyway, enough about alcohol. When we come back, uh, kind of an interesting topic. I, I, I liked it. So we're gonna, it's kind of a little, a little more upbeat. So street artists are drawing now in, on Vancouver's first legal graffiti wall. Uh, but in Toronto, we also have something called Graffiti Alley. When we come back, we're going to talk about that article share with you some information about what's going on in BC and uh, how cool it really is and get your opinion. 416-870-6400 if you want to join us. We'll be right back. You're on the road to recovery. I'm Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Hello there. Welcome back. You're on the road to recovery. It's almost over this trip for this Saturday night. We got more stuff to do when we come back uh, after the next break. We're going to talk about the government shutting down all the COVID restrictions all of a sudden as kids going back to school. Want to know how you're going to feel about that, whether you're comfortable with it or it makes you a little nervous. And next week, yeah, next Saturday night at nine o'clock, you got to make sure you join us because that show we're going to have a couple of segments on sharing the grievances. 
Yeah, man. If you ever saw that Seinfeld episode where George's dad decided to share the grievances on Festivus instead of Christmas, and uh, that's what we're going to do. We're going to share the grievances. We might even have a poll in the studio. So uh, we have an expert. We're going to talk about how people deal with the things that bother them and such. But I'll tell you, you know, what we're talking about now is kind of an interesting story for me. I, I you know, I did a lot. I, I have done uh, up until the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, did a lot of street work, a lot of street rescue work, uh, and it would find me. I'd find myself in you know, the kind of alleyways of downtown Toronto and then around the GTA, and saw some really remarkable uh, graffiti. My uh, one of my my boys, one of my sons, uh, is in fact a graffiti artist as a as a hobby. Uh, did it a lot when he was younger, not so much now. Um, and you know, for the most part, in places around the world, uh, putting graffiti on walls is illegal. It's especially if the walls you don't own, right, um, or you haven't been paid to do it. Well, street artists are drawing on Vancouver's first legal graffiti wall, is what the topic says. After seeing a spike in graffiti vandalism during the COVID-19 pandemic, a new initiative, green lit by Vancouver City Council in May 2021, has finally given artists a legal spot to paint. Fellow's name is James Hardy, or Jamie Hardy, who also goes by Smoky Devil, who was one of the first street artists to break ground in the back in the lane of 133 Pender Street in Vancouver. Anyone's allowed to come here at any time and paint on the wall without getting arrested. He goes on to say, after years of campaigning to City Hall, the longtime street artist said he's proud to be he's proud to initiate the first legal graffiti wall in Vancouver. Uh, AKA Smoky Devil, James, uh, Jamie Hardy, uh, working on the city of Vancouver's first sanctioned graffiti wall. I think that if someone had a choice to do it legally or leg- or illegal, they do it legit, is what he says. I think it's long overdue. The city of Vancouver saw more than 40% spike in nuisance graffiti in 2020, and Fry said that the goal of the first sanctioned graffiti wall is to provide an avenue and opportunity for graffiti writers to hone their craft. See, it's the same kind of thinking, my friends, that we have to employ when we're talking about things like gangs and guns and kids and teens and violence and all of that. You have to give people a chance, a place to act out in a healthy way. So in graffiti, for a lot of people, it can be like an addiction, according to this uh, several uh, graffiti artists. I think it provides an avenue for folks to meet the compulsion that's not necessarily risk of some of circumstances that come with vandalizing people's private property. Uh, <clears throat> Helen said, Helen Helton, another expert, said the Vancouver Native Housing Society donated their lane wall for sanctioned graffiti and community fundraising is underway to support artists with supplies and paint. We're trying to prioritize indigenous gra- graffiti artists, according to Helton. All this uh, art here uh, will be covered by other artists at some point. Anyone can test their talent on the walls at West Pender, in the alley, and even painting over Smokey D's work is fair game as well. If they do, as long as they're better than me, go ahead, he says. Right? So the concept they're hoping will, will, um, will potentially draw tourists like the Toronto uh, Graffiti Alley, which we're going to talk about here in just a minute. Um, so the idea is that people will have a place to display their graffiti and get their message out. You know, one of the things we do in therapy when people have stuff to deal with, 
uh, we ask them to write things, write notes, write letters. You know, if there's someone who's in an abusive situation or, or is a victim of uh, and, and suffers with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, as a, revolt, as a result of a trauma uh, brought on by someone, by, by, a, by a perpetrator, bad guy, if you will, uh, writing letters to the bad guy. Dear bad guy, you ruined my life, blah, 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 blah. The ability to, 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 to express yourself, the experience, ability to share yourself. You know, one of the things I have, I have the best job in the world being a broadcaster, is I have the ability to share some things that bug me. Obviously, it's not just about me. It's about what other people want to talk about and listen to as well. But I do have a platform for sure, and it's a privilege and an honor and, and, and not, nothing to be taken uh, lightly or taken for granted. So same too with people who want to draw and share and, and get their messages out, whether they're messages of hope, whether they're messages of dismay, whatever. The, the idea is to get the messages out so that you have the ability to, um, you know, to, to, to express yourself, right? So interestingly enough, I pulled this thing called Your Guide to Toronto's Graffiti Alley. So it's really cool what's going on in Vancouver. I really think it's a great project. But ladies and gentlemen, my friends, buddies, listen. This stuff, we got a place in Toronto. It's Rush Lane. It's just south of Queen's West, Queen West, better known as Graffiti Alley. It's home to a massive swath of vibrant street art, according to the article. Though relatively no, well known by city dwellers, if you're new to Toronto or just visiting, you're, like, you're likely to walk right by it if you're not paying attention or don't know to where to look. But for Graffiti Alley here in Toronto is always worth checking it out. Much of the art has stayed the same, but there's often something new popping up, so you never know what to see. Well, the idea was Graffiti Alley may be one of Toronto's most beloved attractions. Street art wasn't always accepted in Toronto, as you know. The issue came down to street art versus vandalism. It's kind of what they're seeing in Vancouver, right? With the lines blurred in the city, uh, city officials and authorities, the debate about graffiti in City Hall still exists, by the way. But the current view is that one or more open acceptance of street art having the power to beautify a neighborhood. Street Art Toronto, called START, is an initiative started by the City of Toronto in 2012 as a way to reduce graffiti vandalism by replacing it with a creative murals and street art that engages the community and makes a positive impact on the city. So Graffiti Alley in Toronto, if you haven't seen it, you got to go. Like I'm excited to go again. I haven't been in years. Um, the program's helped immensely in shifting the city's perspective on what graffiti can be. So there are different forms of graffiti, right? Like there's quote-unquote gang-related graffiti where there's messages of, of, um, of ownership, if you will, so that those in gangs know whose territory it is or isn't. It's the ability to to know where you belong and where you don't belong, where you should be and where you shouldn't be. So hit up Graffiti Alley here in Toronto. It's located within Toronto's Fashion District. It's really amazing. Runs south from Queen Street, from Spadina to Portland, in an alleyway known as Rush Lane. Um, the art is amazing. There's other spots around Toronto where you can see graffiti. Um, just gives people a chance, right? The corner of Blue and Shaw, everywhere you look in Kensington Market area, you'll see some. A lot of people have given up the build side of buildings so people can express themselves with messages. It's become a great marketing tool for many companies and, and brands and so on. Uh, it's a thing and something that I support in the right environment. What I'm not sure I support is the Ontario choice of what we're not going to do anymore. So it's all about what we're not doing anymore for COVID-19 that we're talking about coming up here. Give us a call 416-870-6400. We want to hear what you think. We'll be right back.
Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. You are listening to The Road to Recovery at 640 Toronto. I'm Yona Bud, your host this evening. Thank you so much for joining us. We've got a little bit of time left, not a lot. But want to hear from you, 416-870-6400. want to hear what you think about the fact that the Ontario government has now scrapped pretty much everything COVID, right? So uh, members of the Ontario's outgoing science table say they would have advised against the province's decision to scrap its mandatory isolation period for COVID-19 if they haven't been, if they've been consulted on the move. Chief Medical Officer of Health Dr. Kieran Moore said Wednesday that those who test positive for COVID-19 no longer need to isolate for five days, an approach he refers to as practical and pragmatic. Under new guidelines, people should stay home until their fever clears, which means now everybody needs to have a thermometer. So not only do you need a COVID test, you also need to have a thermometer. So go out and get one of those right away. And their symptoms have improved for 24 hours, but they should wear a mask in any setting. Listen to me. You're allowed to go back in public, but for 10 full days and refrain from going to high-risk settings such as long-term care homes and such. So kids are going back to school. No masks. They got a cold. They're going back to school. They got the flu. They're going back to school as long as they don't have a fever, runny nose, drippy, all that stuff like they used to have. That's okay, too. But as long as you don't have a fever and your symptoms are are subsiding, so you get to decide. Obviously, every parent out there is going to make sure that their kids are their 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 kids are uh, uh, symptoms are subsiding. They want them home. They want them out of home and back at school. Um, a scientific director for the Dr. Fahad Razak, Razak um, probably didn't pronounce it properly. He's a scientific director for the province's science table, which is set to be dissolved by the government next week. The group did not officially assess the government's decision to drop the isolation requirement, though they haven't always been consulted on pandemic measures. He disagrees with the move, noting it could put further strain on Ontario's healthcare system, uh, which has seen emergency departments close for hours or days lately uh, at this time, um, largely due to staff shortages. So I'm seeing significant risk in the healthcare system and waves and a wave that has not receded to the extent that we would like, according to the experts. The province is still in the midst of a seventh wave. I don't know. You believe that? 416-870-6400 or 888-225-8255. Are we in a seventh wave? We really should be worried about this stuff still or kind of just let's move past it. The province, um, early this month, they, uh, they said that the seventh wave had peaked. So Ontario is now scrapping the five-day isolation period. Uh, according to the COVID-19, wastewater signals have seen a slight uptake as of late, and schools across the province are starting a new school year next week without a whole lot of, you know, not a whole lot of preventative stuff in place. Kids don't have to wear masks, and they're not cohorting anymore. I don't believe they're still six feet apart, all that stuff. Those factors combined with an expected rise in COVID-19 cases and a return of other just seasonal stuff. Like people are just getting colds and flus and stuff, which is, you know, it's what you get, right? It just, you don't wash your hands and you don't cover up in places where you potentially could spread your illness or get your illness spread to you, an illness spread to you. So millions of kids across the country will now be coming into these indoor settings where it's a viral spread anyway, right? We got Daniel on hold. He's waiting to talk about legislations affecting long-term care homes 
Um, love to talk to Daniel about that, but we're really focused here on what's happening with COVID restrictions. So uh, hopefully Daniel will check in with us another time for a subject that's uh, close to his heart. Millions of kids will, you know, like if, if, you, if you've got kids, grandchildren, neighbor kids, whatever, um, they're snotty nose at the best of the little ones in particular, are snotty nose at the best of times uh, during the winter months, cold, flu, all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> and we've been worried about kids forever um, in terms of getting COVID, passing COVID on to others, and so on. Um, the, the, Dr. Gerald Evans, he's a science table member who teaches at Queen's University, said it's far too early to lift the isolation rule. So everybody's focused on the isolation rule, but I believe that mask mandates are no longer in place as well, right? Uh, there's no way to handle the pandemic at this point. According to the experts, this is not the way we should be doing things. It's been a rough winter for COVID-19 in the Southern Hemisphere, he said, and data emerging from the U.S. where most schools have already started are seeing a tremendous rise in cases. The problem with lifting the isolation rule is that knowing this is likely to happen in Ontario or in Canada, the province is also moving away from COVID-19-specific guidance in favor of an all-virus approach. That means that the latest guidelines apply to other illnesses like flu and lung infections from the respiratory cyclical virus. So each Evans says that the approach is problematic because the viruses are all different with their own con- uh, po- contagious points. Excuse me. So it's way too early for the sort of approach to COVID while the flu season is coming up and underscores a generalization that all respiratory viruses are kind of the same, and that's just not true. So bronchitis, you know, walking pneumonia, pneumonia, all that kind of stuff, still prevalent this time of year with this kind of weather, right? But I don't know, have you just had enough of the whole COVID thing? Are you, like, excited that this stuff is, you know, we're sort of coming back to some kind of normal? I'm not sure what that means, but some kind of normal. Um, trying to figure out where we all fit in the scheme of things in terms of the right things to do, the wrong things to do. I don't know. All I know is if I'm not feeling well, I stay away from people. Always have. Prior to pandemic, same thing. Um, And I'm a big believer that if people are sick, they should stay home, even if it's just simple as a runny nose or or, or a little bit of a flu, you know, because you can pass it on to people. It doesn't take much to infect people these days. But again, you wash your hands. People wash their hands. Right, have Kleenex so they're blowing their nose into something other than the air. Their ground, you know, their their hands or their, their their whatever. Right, so making sure you have some place to to get rid of whatever's clogging you up. Making sure people aren't walking around the streets spinning down on the ground like we've seen, you know, in past years. We want to be more careful about things like that. But if you wash your hands, if you keep a mask around and use it when you feel comfortable to use it, um, it's probably just a really good thing to do. Forever. I don't think we ever want to lift those kinds of uh, recommendations because we should constantly be washing our hands and constantly be trying to stay clean and not touching banisters and, 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 and escalator, uh, es- escalator uh, the things you hold on to at escalators on the way up and down. I don't know what they're called. I guess they're not really a railing. They're moving, right? Want to wash your hands after touching that stuff. You know, you go into a mall and you touch the door, you touch the handles, a million people ahead of you, right, or behind you. So wash your hands. Be careful. Wear a mask. Next week, remember, we're going to be talking about airing the grievances. We're going to have a couple of segments on airing the grievances where you can call in and just tell us about all the things that piss you off, and we're going to help you manage those things. 
be nice to the people in your life. Be kind. Say something nice. If you don't have something nice, don't say anything at all. Love the ones you're with. You're the best audience ever. I love you guys, but sometimes we're not nice to the people closest to us. So just because they're close to you and they're not going to throw you away doesn't mean you get to abuse them, right, or say nasty things. Anyway, looking forward to seeing you all next week. I appreciate you joining me on the Road to Recovery this week. I'm Yona Bud, 640 Toronto.